Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Our guest on the Resilient Surgeon podcast today is Dr. Amy Edmondson, the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School, and the topic is psychological safety. I vividly recall when I first heard the term psychological safety, and honestly, I groaned inside. Like so many of us, I grew up in a surgical culture where fear and anxiety were the accepted drivers of high expectations and excellence. These were the deeply embedded and normalized levers of training and of our surgical culture. And like so many belief systems, these levers became the way. After all, the system worked, right? Well, Dr. Amy Edmondson has shown me and so many others like me just how wrong I was to conflate the world of fear and anxiety with high expectations and excellence. It is the exact opposite. Psychological safety is like the handle on a garden hose faucet. When the psychological safety valve is open, it allows the free flow of ideas, creativity, problem solving, and radical candor about problems and challenges that are so essential for any team or organization to grow and flourish. When psychological safety is combined with discipline, accountability, and high expectations, you have a recipe for magic, the magic of better outcomes in all endeavors, the magic of better problem solving, the magic of a more flexible and rapid ability to adapt and create for the future. And most importantly, and the reason why I'm so excited to have Amy on our podcast, the magic of better psychological health at work and at home. Amy Edmondson is literally the woman who has put the world of psychological safety on the map, having studied it for more than 20 years. And she is the author of the seminal book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth, a book that Daniel Pink said every leader should read and heed, and who Robert Sutton, Stanford professor and author of the national bestsellers Good Boss, Bad Boss, and Scaling Up Excellence, called a modern masterpiece. I am honored to have Amy as our guest on The Resilient Surgeon. She is a genuine superstar, a cultural game changer and the person ranked as the number one management thinker in the world in 2021 by Thinkers 50, the equivalent of the Academy Awards in Management Thinking. So as always, open your mind, get curious, and enter the world of psychological safety with our guest today, Dr. Amy Edmondson. 
The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS cardiothoracic surgery ebook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. And it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Our guest today is Dr. Amy Edmondson, a professor at Harvard on the business school there. And we're delighted and honored, Amy, to have you join us today. And, and just a sincere note of appreciation for giving us uh, some of your very precious and valuable time so that we can learn from you. Really greatly appreciated. I'm honored to be here. Uh, so, you know, Amy, if I'd like to go back and see, you know, how did you get into this thing called psychological safety? And, you know, I, I heard about you, you're an engineer originally, is what I understand. And you worked for Buckminster Fuller, uh, you know, a number of years ago. And that apparently had some influence on you. But in your book, The Fearless Organization, you also talk about the fact that you actually didn't set out to study psychological safety. So I think it'd be very interesting to hear how you kind of stumbled into it. And that experience with Buckminster really kind of set the stage, I, I think, for what that means. I think that's true. Uh, uh, Bucky Fuller really set me up to be interested in and passionate about, broadly speaking, how do you make a better world? More narrowly, how do you create organizations as systems that work and that learn and that, that allow people to contribute to the enterprise in meaningful ways, which involves constant learning? So I, I came to graduate school 10 years after graduating from college and having worked as an engineer and then having worked as a consultant. And I came with a kind of general interest in figuring out what is it that gets in the way and what is it that could help organizations learn mm -hmm. so that and they can keep up right in a, in a changing right. world right and i got lucky enough to be invited in my first year of graduate school to join a study of adverse medical events now what's the connection well the the in my mind the connection was a key part of learning in organizations is learning from mistakes and learning from failures and learn you know learning learning from what didn't work so that you can do better next time. And uh, so my, my small part in this larger study was to measure the properties of units, healthcare, I mean, patient care units in a couple of hospitals as teams, to use a classic team diagnostic survey, measure the properties of these units as teams. How good was the teamwork? How, how good was the leadership of the unit? And this was largely um, nursing units, if, if mm -hmm. when it comes mm -hmm. right down to it. We did we did survey the house staff as well, but this was really very much about the, the nurses. And to see whether better teams, I mean, the prediction was that better teams would have lower error rates, you know, better coordination, better communication. 
Unfortunately, um, or at least it seemed unfortunate at first, the data seemed to suggest the exact opposite, right? When I, when I got finally got the data of my survey data and six months of error collection by trained nurse investigators, the correlation was significant, but in the wrong direction, right? And initially that just didn't make any sense, right? Why would better teams have higher error rates? And to make a long and story it, as short it, as could, yep. Yeah. Well, to, to, so what does a better team mean? Well, in, in this case, case, a better team meant higher scores on some classic measures of, okay. of team effectiveness. Um, and that included such things as, um, uh, you know, measures of the, of the, of the, nurse leader behavior as um, sort of listening and enabling me to do my best work, um, right. um, being um, uh, supported by the organization context to, to work as a team, an ability to coordinate, get the help I need when I, when I need it, and, and so forth. So a variety mm -hmm. of measures okay. that I didn't invent that were developed and used, by the way. The reason this study came about was that a prior study in, in aviation had shown that cockpit crews that functioned better as teams, again, using some of these same measures, um, had lower error rates in simulators. And, and so they'd be in the simulator, they'd be given a really tough you know, assignment, a, you know, a, a, a tough problem that would come along. And those mm -hmm. that sort of functioned better as teams did better in this, in this simulated environment. Now, um, so this was in a, in a sense supposed to be a replication or a continuation of that same way, that same type of thinking. But you know, in a simulator, you can actually measure errors objectively. So you might see right. where I'm going here. What, yeah. what I began to suspect with this unexpected result was that the better teams weren't necessarily making more errors but that it might be the case that they were more able and willing to talk about them. Right? Now, the way in which I collected additional data to show that that might actually be the case um, is probably more time than, than your listeners need uh, <laughs> to take up with this. Uh, but I did several secondary analyses and, and got at least um, enough data to suggest that was very we possibly very likely had a significant reporting bias right that some groups were were simply hiding more of the things that go wrong than others which is right. understandable right that's just human yeah. understanding human nature human, human nature. nature and those and and by the way those those um the, those differences were highly correlated with people's views of their nurse manager in this particular case. You know, if they felt that they were going to be put on trial, uh, made to feel like an idiot, if, you know, things had gone wrong, they just, you know, if something goes wrong in a way that you can't hide it, of course, it's not hidden, but the little things, the many little things that just don't they go under the radar. Yeah. They yeah. go under the radar. And, yeah. and, and so I thought, you know, I, I, I at first called it in the paper about this, I called it, the, you know, these differences in interpersonal climate. And I, you know, they seemed to be leadership related for sure. Uh, but, but otherwise it was an unexpected finding. One couldn't really um, get, uh, you know, get, get terribly confident about it. So in the next study, which was in a manufacturing setting, 
I developed um, a, a set of survey items to assess the interpersonal climate, you know, the sort of the, the way it is around here in this team or in this unit or in this branch. Right. And, and I, I think that word, those words, interpersonal climate, I, I just want to like bold those for a moment yes. because it's very critical. Yeah, that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. In fact, it was a, re a a review a reviewer of the next paper that was published um, in a, in a top journal. It's called Administrative Science Quarterly. Who changed? Who said? You know, I think what you're talking about here is psychological safety. Mm. And, and wow. I, I I was just calling it safety. He said that's confusing. He or she said that's confusing because it. I thought you meant physical safety. Oh, okay, you're right. So I called it psychological safety. And and the only downside of that term terminology is that ever since people have thought that means sort of something, you know, soft and mushy. And, easy. and in yeah. fact, it's you know, psychological safety. A psychologically safe environment is one in which you're speaking up about error, you're asking for help, you're yeah. you're dissenting, you know, you're offering a dissenting view. These are all things that that no human being finds super easy, especially not. Uh, in a hierarchy. But in the right. follow-on study that I did, and then many, many other studies that, that I and others have done, um, the uh, psychological safety as a, as a construct varied significantly across groups in the same organizations, and it had high predictive validity of learning behavior in the teams, but also performance uh, in the teams. So this got interesting. Right? So then it became... Um, it became such a, well, in, in the academic literature, people had long seen it as a, I mean, after this time, because this was 1999 that the mm -hmm. first study on psychological safety came out. And, and, and then in, in about 2016, there was a big New York Times article about Google doing a study to right. set out to identify the factors that best explained performance differences across teams at Google. They had 180 teams studied over quite some time, measured 200 different variables and psychological safety emerged as the factor that explained most of the variance in performance. And, and so it got, it got their attention. It ended up getting a lot of other people's attention uh, as well. So I think if you could just say that sentence again, psychological sure. safety is the factor that Psychological safety was the factor that explained performance differences. It was the it was the best predictor of differences in performance across teams at Google. And and, you know, and if I remember right, it was like overwhelmingly the big. It was number predictor. one, right? It was and number right, one. It was yeah. number one. And right behind that were things like people found the work to be meaningful. Mm -hmm. uh, they mm -hmm. they. Um, um, you know, um, believed they were having an impact and, and um, that there was a reasonable degree of structure and clarity about the work. Right? Right, those, right. those were the others that sort of emerged in the, in the top. But psychological safety was the number one predictor of differences in performance. Well, that, that gets us to, I guess, the definite, let's talk about the definition of psychological safety. And, and perhaps even if you might expand a little bit about your experience with Buckminster and what that milieu was like, because I, I, the way you've described it, it, it certainly epitomizes the, wor the world of psychological safety. I love, I love making that connection. And indeed, my first job out of college, which was working for Buckminster Fuller, epitomized a psychologically safe work environment. I worked for a boss who seemed 
um, earnestly interested in what I and others had to say, what we were thinking. Mm -hmm. He was curious. You know, he asked questions. And by the way, he was in his mid 80s at the time. Right. So this is wow. not necessarily yeah. to be taken for granted. Um, he was curious. He was he was, um, you know, um, respectful and, 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 and so appreciative. I mean, I, I remember feeling that, you know, if I do a piece of work, he would look at it and and be be delighted with the results and the effort uh, that it took. So so he certainly spoiled me uh, for real work, the real Your world. Right? Yeah, I, yeah. Know, it was a tough act to follow. Yeah. Um, although I've been very lucky because the next well, the, the next job I had, I was my own boss because I, I I gave myself the task of writing a book about Fuller's mathematical work that took a little time. And then I was I I, I was hired by a wonderful visionary um, sort of management thinker and entrepreneur named Larry Wilson, and I worked for him for uh, three years as a sort of research director of his consulting operation, and I just learned so much. And that's when I really started reading about these things. Not not anything an engineer had done. Uh, previously right right and and that's what got me i got so fascinated by organizations and how they work and more often don't work very well and how how they can be places where people kind of come to work in the morning and feel they're both contributing and expressing themselves and and you know working with colleagues in in in, in really functional ways or quite the opposite and i wanted to know more about that so that's what ended up pushing me to go back to school. And that highlights exactly why this is such a crucial topic for being our best self, wellness, you know, being resilient. I, I think it's just the way you spoke about how you felt when you were working with Buckminster Fuller, you know. I mean, that's a joy to come into a job like that where it, you it feel is. valued and seen and heard, you know. So and you feel you're making you, that what you're you collectively are doing matters that you're making yeah, a difference. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's wonderful. So, what is your definition of psychological safety? What is it exactly? It's an it's an environment in which you feel able, and I don't want to use the word comfortable because I don't think it's ever easy, right? Where mm -hmm. you feel able to mm -hmm. to speak up openly, candidly, with error with a need for help, with a dissenting view, and you're able to take the interpersonal risks that knowledge intensive work requires. It's, it's just that, it's that kind of climate. The freedom to speak your mind yeah. about things. The sense that, that it's expected, right? I think it's 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 this isn't about being a bull in a china shop, right? It's mm -hmm. not about okay, I can walk in there and say anything I want and walk right out. It's more about that we have an obligation to each other to to be to be candid, to to do our best, to yeah. to speak and to listen. And and so I think. Maybe the simplest way to describe an environment like that is an environment where people um, respect each other right? and, and um, really are, um, they, they, they're able to feel seen and heard and valued. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I, I know when 
when I first heard of psychological safety, and I mentioned it when in my intro to you at the SDS, you know, the sort of groan inside, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I suspect that a lot of my surgeon colleagues may have a similar immediate reaction if they're not familiar with the real science mm -hmm. behind mm -hmm. psychological safety. But the groan is, okay, now we got to sit around and listen to, you know, what everybody is going on in their heads and all their issues and problems and stuff. And, and so, so what is psychological safety not? You know, what, right. what is it not? Lovely. Uh, I have to say, I, I used to use the phrase, I guess my, I didn't do a very good job of my technical definition, but it's the ability to speak up with work relevant content, right? So this work is- Work relevant content. Yeah. And, and um, I, um, I, I interviewed a, um, um, a, a pilot, a captain um, and aviation safety expert um, recently and he told me, and I think it's very relevant for surgeons, he told me that, as you may know, every time you're leading a flight, let's say for you know, a major airline, um, the chances are very good that you will have not worked with that particular crew before. Yeah, they okay. transition a lot between people. Right. Yeah. It's just yeah. the shift pattern, you know, the size, the size yes. of the workforce. Yeah. So, in, and this is true in, in some surgical contexts as well, probably not quite as much um, fluidity, but you rarely have you know, this exact same OR team day in and day out. Anyway, he says, so with the start of each new shift, i.e. the start of each new team, he, as the captain, greets the group by saying, I have never flown a perfect flight. Hmm. And it's not going to happen today. Mm -hmm. you know, and then he explained to me that, you know, it breaks his heart. Like he so wants to have flown a perfect flight, but there's always going to be an error, um, something in there. And, and, and what he was saying to them, he said, they always, they, they laugh and he says, no, I'm serious. I need to hear from you. Right. So it's a, it's a, what he's doing is setting the stage. The stage. Yeah. He's framing the work we are about to do as, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm still very skilled and, and authoritative person who is technically and legally in charge here. Um, but it's, almost given that I'll miss something mm -hmm. and it's your job to say so fast right so the groan that we both you know essentially experienced which is quite understandable comes from mistaking psychological safety with anything goes or a vote you know I have to listen to you and now do what you said no um what it means is I would never, let's say as a surgeon, wanna be in a position where I miss something that could have made a difference. Someone else saw it, but they just didn't feel able. You know, they maybe looked around the room and no one else saw it, so maybe I'm wrong. You know, just say it, right? It's it's air on the side of releasing that thought. Yes, yes. Now, the thought might be wrong, that's okay, right? We mm -hmm. live in a complex, uncertain, unpredictable world. Healthcare is very complex, very knowledge intensive and, and very customized, right? So it's that that conversation matters. That doesn't mean you have to act on every suggestion, right? It just means that you create the type of environment where people know without a shadow of a doubt, their voice is expected if they see something, right? If they have a, if they have a question, if they have a 
a worry. Um, and you're so the, ultimately, this is a wonderfully selfish thing. As a surgeon, you want a psychologically safe operating room, not so everyone else can tell you what to do, so that you will never be at risk of an avoidable mm -hmm. mishap, right? Yeah. Something that could have been prevented because someone in the room saw something you missed. And because you are by definition a fallible human being, that's not an unheard of event, right? And even if someone only you know makes that kind of difference once in 20 operations, it's still worth it, right? The other 19 are not gonna be harmed by people. No, that's right. Yeah. Yep, this is the kind yeah. of place where my voice when needed is absolutely expected. You know, and that, that you said, the word expected and i think that's important and i know ray dalio i mean he from bridgewater i mean he he framed it as an as an absolute obligation yes uh, i mean very strong and right. basically if you didn't speak your mind you were not going to be part of the organization almost i mean it was really crucial right. for them you know, the uh, navy has something like that too like if you didn't speak up and you saw something or knew something or something went wrong in a training flight um, and you don't speak up within the first 48 hours, that's a very serious offense. Right, right. Everyone will make errors. That's okay. You know, you can make an error, but please tell us about it. Are there any other misconceptions about psychological sure. safety I mean, that you would like to one, sorry, put sorry. Into, our, into our heads here? No, number one misconception. It is not being nice, right? Because yeah. unfortunately, being nice at work is often code for don't say what you really think. Right? Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. nice. it's not this it's not everything you say is going to get a round of applause right it's it's not pediatric soccer right it's 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 not an absence of conflict in fact in more psychologically safe teams there's more debate more dialogue um again that doesn't necessarily mean the same as a vote or uh, a consensus in fact, it's not consensus. So it's it's not soft. It's not kumbaya. It's mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. it's a kind of um, uh, uh, I, I like to you know it's it's um, I don't want to say radical candor because that can sound too brutal, right? It's it's sort of unexpected candor. I mean, it's it's unusual candor, right? It's most of us are socialized um, both directly and inadvertently to take hierarchy very seriously right and, and i'm a you know i'm a, i'm a fan of status and and authority and and the, and the very you know the the very real achievement that the surgeons um that you represent um have achieved and nobody has eyes in the back of their head right so there's mm -hmm. still this you know mm -hmm. no matter no matter whether you're the the ceo um a surgeon you are still um eager to know what you don't know right yeah. so you're eager to 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 learn you're eager to keep learning and your colleagues at various levels are part of what enable you to keep learning the um oh what was i going to say here not just a second i'm talking about what it's not oh um I thought a key phrase that you used uh, in describing psychological safety, and I, I is is that it enables. Mm. It's mm. an enabler. It it sort of opens the door. And if you could comment about because you 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 alluded to it there, um, 
the accountability and discipline that is so critical in the context of psychological safety uh, and why that's you know so important and how psychological safety is the gateway into into high performance. Did I have that right? Did I frame it? Yes, that yes. Yeah. No, it's perfect because um, because of the Google study and all the other research that shows this relationship between psychological safety and performance, particularly team performance, um, people can, can think, oh, you're saying it's a driver of performance. It's yeah. not. It's not. Psychological safety yeah. is not a driver of performance. Um, you know, um, passion about the patients as a driver of performance. Um, there's many, many things that motivate us. Psychological safety is about enabling, right? Mm -hmm. and let's say I'm motivated to achieve something, but then I look around and I think, oh, I could never do that here, right? Yeah. Then I've got the right. brakes on. So psychological safety is about taking your foot off the brake. Right. Because you're less worried about, oh, what do people think of me? And is this going to be okay? And will people reject me if I'm different? And you're more thinking about the patients or, you know, the the um, other goals that, that drive you in your life. So I, I um, maybe all academics have this disease, but here comes a two by two where one variable and one dimension, and let's have it be the vertical dimension is psychological safety, right? That can be low to high. Yeah, and, this is good. This is and, good. Yep. And then the horizontal dimension is motivation, let's say, or ownership, psychological ownership or engagement in the task. But let's just say motivation to keep it simple. In the bottom left, nobody wants to be there, right? That's apathy. That's, I feel uh, afraid of my boss. I don't much care about the work anyway. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, mm -hmm. that's, I'm just checked out here. Um, but I'm also not a fan of being in the upper left, which sometimes people call that the comfort zone, you know? Easy to be myself around here. I don't work very hard. I don't even, you know, care all that much about the mm -hmm. outcome, mm -hmm. but it sure mm -hmm. is a nice place to hang out. That's not what I want, right? That's not what you want. That's not at all what we're talking about. The comfort zone um, is not where optimal work gets done. But I'll tell you, I see less evidence of organizations with comfort zones than of organizations with the, the lower right, which I call the anxiety zone. And really more accurately, it's the interpersonal anxiety zone. Um, it's where I'm motivated, I care, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about what we do, but I'm tiptoeing. I'm reading the room before, mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. before I speak up. Now that's where patients can get hurt. That's where projects can take too long because people don't push back with with their worry about you know a proposal that doesn't sound right and and so a lot of both harm and wasted time and resources occur in the interpersonal anxiety zone and I'll also i would say misery personal misery oh, because you can't exotic. speak your mind you know you have motivation you're being thwarted you're being thwarted so because you've got all the gas but you've yeah. got your foot on the brake so you're yeah. not moving forward and it right. is and i think that's I think at the end of the day, I mean, I think that's where burnout happens. And in I, fact, I we do too. now have yeah. some new, you know, there's a handful of studies coming out um, about um, burnout's um, relationship with low psychological safety. Right. And um, big, big, right? Big. Because it's Very just, big. you can't, you know, it's, it's almost like that's extra, that's extra effort. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. effort to kind of, um, 
sort of wait and see and, and to worry. You're holding that worry by yourself. Chronically. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so the upper right is is you could is the high performance zone, right? It's where people feel enabled and motivated to do their very best work. Um, it's also the place where people where continuous learning happens. And you know these these two areas you talk about anxiety in two lanes. One is <clears throat> good anxiety, and then the other yes. one is you know bad yes. anxiety. I right. guess uh, interpersonal right. climate or interpersonal anxiety. And and I and again I want to go back to the interpersonal climate as a as a incredibly important phrase because it's like the climate outside. You know I mean it, there yeah. is an interpersonal climate and it's either sunny and clear. <laughs> uh, and or it's or it's miserable weather right and being in miserable weather all the time is is very unpleasant um uh so i i think there's a real True. serious uh, analogy there to to the weather yeah. Yeah. and like and and the interpersonal climate i i often think we you, you size it up very skilled people are very good at sizing it up right they, mm -hmm. people take the temperature of of the room quite effortlessly instinctively yeah instinctively yeah. and then they don't and then they often don't sort of re-challenge like i wonder if i'm wrong here you know i wonder if mm -hmm. it actually my mm -hmm. voice would be welcome mm -hmm. but but it's but it's sort of it is it's like it's like you're the fish swimming around in the water you don't think about the water and this is you know people size up the interpersonal climate but they don't they're not necessarily thinking about it right and yet it's shaping their behavior and the the difference uh, in the two anxieties Oh good, yeah, I good mean, anxiety. I, well, yes, yeah. I, I like to say. I mean, good anxiety is. I mean, it, I think it's it's. For example, it's okay to be anxious about the virus, right? It's mm -hmm. okay to be anxious about um, a patient's condition, right? Those are and 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 whereas bad anxiety is, you know, I wonder what Michael will think of me if I if I say this. Right? Yeah. And and yeah. the difference is, I think, good anxiety is almost necessarily discussable. Right, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. because it's it's a sort of legitimate fear of this potential bad thing. Right, we can talk about it. Right, yeah. nobody wants to let this patient down, or nobody wants to kind of miss this this deadline for this project, or um, get you know get get sick because they didn't take the right precautions on um, on some um, uh, with the virus. Right, so it's it's something when it when it's discussable, then we're in it together, right? right, right. Sort of almost, we're even better off, like, cause we've got this shared thing that we care about that we're gonna try to address together. Whereas the the bad anxiety is that which thwarts the ability- it's lonely, right? Yeah, the bad lonely, anxiety makes me lonely. lonelier and more yeah. separate from yeah. you. Well, on that front of the individual, say walking into the room and sizing things up, we all come with a sort of different packed bag to the to the to the party, right? And that packed bag includes things, big five personality. It includes, you know, our childhood, uh, career, uh, inculcation, inculcation of our way of thinking by our career uh, training and career in general. What are your thoughts around what an individual can do to not be thwarted by themselves in these circumstances? Well, it's a great point and a great question. And, you know, in fact, Jim Dietert, who was a former student, now full professor at, uh, at Darden at UVA, and I did years ago, we studied, we studied that systematically. That, and we found that people indeed bring sort of different 
implicit theories about about voice, about whether it's acceptable to speak up. And they they, you know, you mentioned my my job with Buckminster Fuller, and they are indeed influenced by your your early career experience, right? If right, you go right. someplace where people are telling you to you know shut up and listen that sort of becomes part of your your programming that that, right. stick, that sticks with you. Um, now, one of the things that the psychological safety research um, has shown is that these individual differences, which are very real in terms of, you know, backgrounds, and as you say, the big five personality are, are generally, I mean, they're there, but generally group level difference, differences between groups still exist, right? We still get that sort of... Um, um, temperature of the room is reasonably consistent compared to, uh, you know, the, the, even though we see it slightly differently, we will see it more alike than the people in the other room are seeing the other room. But what do you do about that? I mean, I think the main thing is you make it discussable, right? You sort of, um, you don't just assume people know, of course, I want to hear from you. Right. That captain do, did and say, hey, I might miss something I need to hear from you, but you make it explicit. Because you're trying to re, you know, rewire people's taken for granted assumptions about what's acceptable and expected, right. and give them new wiring. You know, the the wiring that says your voice could be, you know, the difference between, you know, harm and a good outcome. And so, when I think you're just you're you're sort of saying you're having that conversation, so that you're you're trying to. Um, I don't know whether we're unpacking the suitcases. I don't think so. But you're mm -hmm. recognizing mm -hmm. that we've come in with these different packed bags. Right. And 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 saying, put them by the edge of the room because there's going to be some stuff we have to do here together. Yeah. And I, and I, people adapt to that, I think, quite quickly. You know, if the, yeah. if the milieu is really right. anxiety-free, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that, that, get, that gets us to what a leader can do. And, and, and I'm just going to read, <laughs> I, I had a residency leadership program that I initiated when I was a program director of general surgery. And as part of that, I brought in a leadership consultant and we did 360 degree reviews. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I'm just going to read a couple of the written comments about me here. Uh, first on the positive side. And I only read this because it sets up the stage for you know, what we'll discuss here. Uh, I was visionary, inspiring, charismatic, willing to take risks, let them operate on me anytime, kind to staff, innovator, fiercely loyal, <laughs> no one better at seeing the future. So I'm like, oh, this is great. I mean, I got my- I, I love my, this game. <laughs> yeah, I got my shit together, you know, it's all's good. <laughs> and then I get to the next now? page. <laughs> yeah, the next page about things I could work on, right? Uh, and there was a there was a, obviously a thematic process here, a theme in the running mm. through this. And here they are. Could listen more, can bulldoze over others' concerns, can be more patient, can bowl over people, can be dictatorial to dissenting opinions. Now, so and th that gets me to, you know, how can we become better as leaders? Uh, in a circumstance like that, where, you know, you've been very successful in your career, successful in the ranks of your, of your work and your clinical practice and all that. But there are these hidden things that you didn't, you don't really necessarily know in terms of how people are perceiving and interacting with you. And how, how can we, you know, whether we're actually in charge of a division or a 
or whatever. We all as cardiothoracic surgeons work with teams and we are leaders by definition. So how can we, what are the skill sets that we specifically can work on to improve the interpersonal climate of anybody that we're working with? I, 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 I um, this is such a rich topic, such a rich issue. And, and, and it makes me think of what, what social psychologists call the actor observer bias. And, mm -hmm. and, and that is basically the bias that I, I, so there's, there's two phenomena here. One, the actor observer bias says, I see um, myself differently than I see you, right? So if, if you're, so um, let's, let's be specific when you are, um, bulldozing over others' concerns or bowling someone over with your opinion and feeling it's right, that that's my, that's what I saw. That's what I just saw. That's what I saw mm -hmm. you. But mm -hmm. what did you think you were doing? You thought you were being passionate. You thought you were being demonstrating um, concern about the case, right? So, mm -hmm. so the, so the, so actors and observers will see the same behavior differently, very differently. And, 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 how does that help us? Well, I think once we realize, of course, that's true, right? Of course, that's true in ordinary um, life in, in all sorts of ways. In all sorts of ways, yeah. Then we can become more self-aware and more thoughtful and even bemused um, mm -hmm, at, mm -hmm. at, at times. And so, and this is closely related to the difference between impact and intention. There's no question in my mind, just even the short time we've known each other, that your intentions you know, we're, we're good. Like we're, you know, we're, we're, you're wanting to be a great leader. You're wanting to create a great division, great uh, patient care. Um, and, um, and yet sometimes the impact of your actions isn't exactly what you intend as, mm -hmm. as shown in these, mm -hmm. in these feedback mm -hmm. data. Um, and so uh, recently I've been thinking, you know, you, you, um, we all of us as you know as as targets of others behavior need to get better at realizing that impact doesn't mean intention right you just had a negative impact on me stop for a moment breathe for half a second i realized that probably wasn't what you you didn't set out this morning to bully me right right, right. um so if i you know it, when when we maturity wisdom is about getting better at separating in impact and intention. Well, it sure is. What I've been thinking about, like in a way as a leader, um, you've got your good intentions and you cannot always predict the impact. And at the same time, you're responsible for the impact, yeah, which is quite interesting, yeah. right? It's a challenge. Like, what do we yeah. do about that? You might say, well, why would anyone want to be a leader given that, that sort of challenge of being responsible for something you didn't intend mm -hmm. I think, okay but but maybe that's um maybe that's an exciting challenge right? because it's a sort of a recognition it's the self-awareness the self-knowledge to know that i'm not always going to get it right or other people you know different people are different and something that works great for one person might not have the same impact on others so what does that mean that means we have to have much more of a direct, honest dialogue over time. Yeah. And, and we have to be a little bit more explicit. Like when I say something, I say, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm intending. But what am I missing? Or 
push back if I'm off the mark, right? You're sort of, you're making that invitation that is absolutely implicit in your mind. It's, it is implicit in my mind. I correct. know it is, yeah, right? Yeah, and that's so you, the damn part of it, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, yeah. we're, you know, we're, in, we're, we're, we're sort of in a hurry and there's a lot going on. So we're, but, but when you stop to think, um, just one extra framing statement around what you're doing and why can change the impact that others experience. Well, so tell us a little more about the individual behaviors, because framing is one of them. Framing is so one of them. As a leader, yeah. what are the, if you could just kind of give us the top sure. three, three to five behaviors that are crucial to, and these are skills just like operating. Absolutely. Uh, let's just make no mistake about that. This mm -hmm. is a skill set that can be developed. Yes. That's right. It's not personality. It's not style. It's skill. Right. And, mm -hmm. and so the three skill, the three categories of skills uh, that I talk about for creating this more learning oriented environment, this psychologically safe environment are, are, are um, framing, inviting and responding. Okay, let's take framing first. Framing is really reframing because we all walk into any situation with a frame, but it's a taken for granted frame. You know, this is an environment where I'm supposed to do what I'm told, or this is an environment where everything will go well unless someone's incompetent and then things won't go well, right? Those are, those are frames that people have, you might not be thinking yes. about them directly, but they have them. Those frames need to be reframed because they're both unhelpful. So, you walk in and you say, um, you know, you, you reframe an environment like Ben, like the like like that captain did, and saying, "I've never flown a perfect flight. I need to hear from you." You're reframing the environment as not one where if ever you know everything will go well unless someone's incompetent. No, the kind of environment where things will largely go well, but you never know, right? Yeah. Something yeah. might happen that's unexpected, and and so reframing, you know, you you might say. Um, um, uh, patient care is a complex, uncertain business, right? So you're reframing the, the situation or the task in such a way that it makes it clear that others' input is welcome because that's the nature of the work. Not right. because you're a nice guy, you know, but because the work requires it. Um, inviting is like, okay, that basically says we're sort of setting a foundation for this is the kind of work where, hey, things can happen. And then and that needs to be repeated a lot. I all think. the time, right? It's, all the time. Yeah. yeah the, you know, repetition yeah. is, is, is the, is the way the rewiring actually happens. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all inherited and our school systems have reinforced mindsets from the industrial era that are not yes. helpful and particularly yeah. not in, you know, in, 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 in healthcare delivery, uh, it just doesn't work that way, right? It's no, a constant no, iterative no. diagnostic learning process. Yeah. And dialogue between caregivers and a dialogue between um, patients and caregivers through which good things happen. Um, and the second thing is just now that we've, we've sort of tried to reframe this type of work as the kind of work that requires us all in, we, um, we want to be overt in our invitation for voice. That's a very wordy way of saying ask questions. Right. I think Ask the number one skill, of others. Yeah. skill of inquiry, it's sort of yeah. saying, you know, the question like, what are we missing? Or who has a different view? Or um, um, you were on last night. And what changes did you notice? You know, just that kind of instead of sort of assuming, well, if someone thought something, they'll say it. You ask. 
And it's just even in this, in our conversation here today, you can see the power of a good question. When you ask me a good question, not only would I feel very awkward sitting here mute, not responding, right? I wouldn't mm -hmm. do that. It would be, it would mm -hmm. be interpersonally bizarre, um, but also you tee me up for offering a good answer um, by asking a good question. I mean, and that's a leadership skill. This is a it's leadership, a leadership skill. skill. And guess yes. what isn't a good question? A leading question. Mm -hmm. um, it's the right knee, right? Bad question, right? It's uh, for a subordinate to answer no or wrong is interpersonally hard or psychologically yes. hard. Yeah. Um, so it's remind me which knee is it? Or let's double check who's got the screens. Let's look at them. Right? And I think another important point there is as a surgeon, you ask that kind of questions, a leading question. And we, because of all of our experience, might be able to just say, well, no, it's the wrong goddamn knee. Yeah. But right. they they have not had the same training and experience and everything else. That's why it's so important for it us to no give mistake. that permission. Yeah. That's right. It's 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 almost it's like you can feel your brain, you know, someone says it's sunny out, right? You can feel yourself saying, Yes, sir, even yeah. though it's pouring. It's, right. I yeah, mean, it's like it's the right. It, it's a really interesting thing when you analyze sort of transcript data in this way. Right. And right. all of us will ask leading questions, not because we're bad people, but because it, they're sort of, it's, it's a natural thing to do. Right. So you have to, that's why it's a skill, right? The, the skill of good questions, good questions aren't, hey, what's on your mind, but um, what did you see last night? Right. So they're appropriately focused, mm -hmm. but they're not leading and they're not yes, no. As you said, they're what questions. They're what questions, they're exactly. What, 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 yeah. what. Yeah. yeah, and what's going on and what are we missing and what other options are there? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then um, and then finally, and this is so, so relevant in your in your setting, how do you respond? You know, how do you respond when someone says something you don't like or makes a mistake or, you know, drops a vein on the floor? I mean, how do you respond? And the answer is you must respond in a way um, that will not prevent someone from speaking up again the next time, right? So right. it has to be a productive response. And a productive response to me is, um, you know, either humane or appreciative and forward, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, if, if you are bringing bad news forward, it's thank you for that clear line of sight. What should we try next? Right. It's right. it's not how the heck did that happen? Yeah. The big believer in after action reviews and postmortems and all that, but we'll do that work later. Your first, your first response has to be, what next? What how what ideas do you have? Or or who should we pull in? You know, it's just a kind of productively forward looking. And I, I think everybody in the audience must be able to recount being treated oh. like that and how spacious oh. a mental environment that is for all of us, you know, it's really remarkable. And that's why this topic is so crucial for our well-being uh, at work. Uh, and, 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 and now I'm going to lead into home briefly here before we wrap up, because I think this is this, the world of psychological safety. And I don't know, maybe it's not something you've delved into much at the home level or the family <laughs> level, <laughs> but I, I actually, I think it's, it's just as germane there. And uh, 
just as another example, there was one more comment in my 360. Mm-hmm. And I knew who it was. It was a, a, a surgeon, a female surgeon who didn't fit the, the mold, you know, that I would have thought in terms of like the hyper aggressive, you know, surgical mm-hmm. personality. Uh, she's very good and we're good friends now, but she wrote the following. <clears throat> Dr. Mattis is simultaneously harsh and largely unyielding unless one is near in near total agreement with him. <laughs> Nevertheless, his overwhelming personality is a testament to the potency of his strengths, personal strengths. In some ways, he seems almost ruthless in his pursuit to make us strong, leaving a trail of somewhat crushed personalities, which I think he believes is good for us. And here's the kicker. One peer put it perfectly. He's like an, ab- an abusive boyfriend who you absolutely adore, but who you can never be sure won't slap you. Okay. Yeah. yeah so, and I, I feel quite risky. Uh, maybe I don't feel psychologically safe, but I'm doing it anyway, reading it on the air here. Yeah. But the point here is that when I went back and looked at, and I kind of dismissed that as an outlier at the time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but later on after some events in my life and some further reflection, I decided to read these comments to my children. And I've got six kids and I read it to four of them. All right. Because I wanted to know, I mean, is this how they see me? Right. Well, one of my children, Maya said, oh yeah, that's when you were in your dictator phase. <laughs> my, my son, Max, said, you can't tell. Yeah, they couldn't tell me anything. I knew I would hear this buck up, move past it. This is nothing. And Mike, the, set, the slap sentence was perfect. You were essentially unapproachable. But they said they loved and respected me enormously. But I have a very challenged past and, you know, as a surgeon. So my view of kind of a lot of their problems were like, what's the problem here? You know, and, and so I'm sure right. I was relatively dismissive, you know, of those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was such a wake up call to me because I didn't want to be seen like that uh, right. with my children. So I actually, instead of when, when they came to me with things, you know, I, I stopped like saying what they needed to do or those kinds of things. I actually started to learn to listen. Uh, I mean, actually really listen and see them as individuals and their perspectives. Uh, and, um, and, and I learned how to ask questions of them so I could really get a deeper dive into what was going on in their world. That did not truncate in any way or cut off my very typical high expectations for them to contribute to the world or for accountability in our lives. And I, I, I can categorically say that this is probably one of my greatest accomplishments for me is to have made that transition because it, it transformed my relationship with my children, children in a way that is simply, I almost can't articulate it. I mean, our, our level of connection and closeness and it's, it's due to the fact I know that they feel psychologically safe with me now, utterly, totally psychologically safe. And so I just love your comments about that. I I just, I felt that on a home front, it's just, it's just as important there. And if you have a comment about trust, you know, versus psychological safety and and that, so that I just leave you with that as the final thing for you to offer your observations on. I think that is such a wonderful story because 
you know, as, as, as a parent, and I'm sure any parent um, can, em can empathize with that, there's this, you know, the stakes are high, right? You really yeah. want them to thrive and to be good people. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you really do. I mean, you, you had, they were babies and then they grew and yeah. grew and you, you, you know, for the longest time, you really did know everything. And, and it's hard to make that transition. And you are unaware one, you know, we are unaware when we are shutting them down or not listening or being right. Um, exactly. Exactly. And I, I often say it's hard to learn if you already know. And, and being a parent is probably one of those places where you believe, you know, because you, you've already been that age you must know right and it worked for me for christ's sake to realize yeah. that that yeah. was a long time ago and it yeah. may be different from, and you you actually don't know mm -hmm. what they're seeing what they're up against what what they're curious about and to make that switch to learn how to learn you know to really learn even if it's you know they're not teaching you some new trick or something but you're you're learning who they really are what they really see and yeah more often than not, that's going to be a happy surprise. Yes. Um, yes. Right. So, and, I, you know, in a, in a smaller way, psychological safety in, in a family setting, let's say, let's talk about teenagers. There's an, you know, there's a, I think a, a healthy family or a healthy psychological safety environment would have that rule for teenagers. No questions asked. You call anytime you get a ride home. Right. 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 And, because what you're trying to do is say, care about your safety and i'm not going to come down hard if you find yourself in a situation um that isn't optimal I'm just going to come pick you up literally no questions that's, that's the productive response and the productive response the productive exactly. beautiful yeah. example of a productive yeah. response yeah. appreciate you know thank you so much for calling and forward looking right and the, you know the, the the child who just called already I mean, if they called, they already knew they were in over their head or they didn't like what they were seeing. So they've already shown you a certain amount of, you know, character and judgment. Um, and, and so, yes, you know, it, I think families, families in many ways are the, you know, place where it, we, we would hope learning is most able to flourish, but it often mm -hmm. is least able to flourish because mm -hmm. we have these expectations and put people in boxes yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and so on. And trust, right? So trust, you know, trust, um, trust and psychological safety are, are close cousins. Mm -hmm. Trust technically is a word we use to describe our expectations about another person or entity. You know, I, I trust that hospital to give good care. I trust that, I trust that, you know, that spouse to not betray me, right? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a word that describes our positive expectations of their behavior in a situation of uncertainty. Right, where we can't right. verify all the time, but we trust. And um and 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 psychological safety describes the emergent property of a group, um, a family, a unit. And it's um, you know, this is the kind of place where um I can express myself or I'm my voice is welcome or I am, you know, I am I am uh, listened to. It's easy to see that where there is higher trust, there will be more psychological safety. Right? Because right. that 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 pos those positive expectations about others' behaviors in a situation of uncertainty will will combine to make it easier to be direct and open. Right, right. Well, Amy, it's it's just been a delight uh, 
to to talk to you and, and learn from you and all of your experience and wisdom and and academic prowess, frankly. You know, I mean, all the contributions you've made, I mean, it's really, uh, it's staggering. Uh, it really is. Uh, it is staggering. Uh, you've changed the face of so many uh, things in this world and, and brought so much improvement to so many places and people. I, I am certain of that. So I, I thank you sincerely again for being on the podcast and especially for all of your work. And and if you want to let us know, where can people find you? Where can they find more of your work? And certainly, you, I cannot, although the term, the, the title of the book is The Fearless Organization, that is a <laughs> book that should be read whether, you know, don't think of it just as an organization. It's a primer for what the world of psychological safety is all about. So where else can people find you and reach you? Well, um, you can go to um, amycedmondson.com. You can also go to the Harvard Business School website, search um, faculty mm -hmm. Amy Edmondson and mm -hmm. find my other publications. And um, so thank you very much. I feel it's, it's actually truly a, a privilege to be included in this podcast. And the oh, thank the you. conversation was of um, mutual learning for sure. Good, good. Well, again, thanks, Tammy, so much. Thank you. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.